You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. Hey, hey, there you are. Here I am. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve, and I host the show each week, and we dive into what makes politics politics in this country. I want to start out, before we get into the events we're going to cover in this show, I want to give a special shout out to the founder and owner and Ms. CEO of WJMSRadio.com, known as Jams, a.k.a. Jamie, also known as my youngest daughter. Uh, This past Saturday, I had the honor and privilege of being a guest on her show called Sound Off, which happens right here on WJMS every Saturday at 12 o'clock noon. And uh, we talked about a very important subject, which is caring for elderly parents. It gave some examples and things that I've learned in dealing with my parents as uh, they have uh, approached and, and entered into their 90s and what's required. And it's really interesting show. I urge you to uh, go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and uh, look for Sound Off in WJMS and check out this past Saturday's episode. I think, especially uh, for you younger people, I think you'll find it very informative and very interesting. And it was a pleasure to do the show with Jamie. Uh, We had a great conversation, and I just want to say, as always, you know, thanks and kudos to her and her team at WJMS uh, for making all of this possible. So, Let's get right into uh, what we're going to go through this week here on the show. Uh, First, as always, let's get you updated on where we stand with uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic here in the United States. Uh, We are closing in on 3 million people uh, who have been uh, infected by the disease and uh, 2.8 million as of um, Sunday. And uh, we've also had 129,700 people who have died from the disease. So we are nearing 130,000 people uh, that will have perished from this disease. And uh, there seems to be no real end in sight as many of the states uh, show, you know, ramping upward. And in fact, uh, as, a, as a country, we hit a milestone this past Friday with over 50,000 cases reported in a single day. So, you know, this, this pandemic continues to be, you know, a challenge and an issue that we have to address. Uh, we still see a lot of people who, you know, are in, in their, their hurry to get back out and about and get things going and get businesses back up and running and, and all of that uh, still are not practicing, you know, proper distancing, you know, when in crowds and wearing uh, masks and, and the other things that we've been asked and in some cases required to do by the CDC and medical and scientific community in order to help you know, stop the progression of this disease. You know, and, you know, as I said in last week's show, and I've said in other shows, I get that, you know, you want to exercise your freedom of choice and, you know, thinking that wearing a mask uh, to be outside for an hour or two is an inconvenience. And I'll just pass along something that uh, I heard in an interview with several doctors and nurses on the front lines who you know looked at people who are are 
resisting or choosing not to wear a mask for the short period of time they might be out, just remember, you know, doctors and nurses wear those masks for, you know, their full work shift for eight hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day. And, you know, they do that to protect you from, you know, getting any, any illnesses they have, but also to protect themselves from getting sick from anything you might have. So, you know, for us to, to say, I'm not going to wear a mask, you know, as I go downtown for, for two hours, uh, really is, is not, uh, the, you know, a, a good choice. You know, it, it is something that we're going to have to do. It is something that we need to do in order to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and the community safe. And it really should be kind of a no-brainer. You know, the mask reduces your likelihood of spreading or, or catching the coronavirus disease tremendously. So, you know, I, I get, you know, for those of you who are adamantly opposed to wearing masks, I just have to raise the question as to, you know, what do you, you care about? Uh, you know, and in, in the face of, as I said, 130,000 people who have perished from this disease, 130,000 families who have lost a loved one, uh, I don't think that's too big a price to pay. So just my two cents, team, and uh, that's just the way I feel. So I uh, hope everybody had a pleasant and safe and enjoyable 4th of July weekend as we celebrated 244 years of this country being in existence. And, uh, you know, all I can say is it was mighty noisy in my neighborhood uh, last night. Uh, sounded just incredible. You know, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved fireworks. So I sat out on the balcony and just watched all the displays and all the people, you know, shooting off their fireworks uh, around uh, Allentown where I live. And I, my inner child was just having a blast. So, and I hope everybody else had a really great and enjoyable uh, time on the 4th of July. So let's get into what's going on in politics here as we move into the first full week of July in uh, 2020. The first thing I want to bring out, as you know, I usually hold my call to actions toward the end of the show. But there's one I want to drop on you right now because it's extremely important and something that, you know, we've talked about many times in terms of communicating with your elected officials. Uh, Congress has gone on break as of July 3rd for 17 days. And what that means is that, you know, the congressmen and women are going to be back in their home districts. They're going to be holding office hours. They're going to be meeting with uh, people in the communities uh, in their district. So it, it is a golden opportunity for you to get a chance to perhaps have that conversation with your uh, congressman or congresswoman and let them know what your feelings are on you know, the issues of the day, whether it's coronavirus or the election you know, or um, you know, the, the current uh, unrest in this country over you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, the, the police treatment of civilians in our country. So, you know, check their schedules, call their offices, find out when they're going to be holding, you know, uh, town meetings or open meetings and go participate. Ask the questions. Let your voice be heard. Make sure they understand what you are expecting of them as your elected official. You know, as I always say, you know, we hire them 
uh, to do what we want. It does not work the other way around. We're not here to do what they want. So, you know, yeah, reach out, find your uh, representative and have that conversation. You know, talk to their, talk to them, talk to their staff, you know, get your message in front of that person while you have the opportunity in your local area. So the, the next thing I want to want to bring up, and again, um, this occurred, uh, was reported on July 3rd, um, uh, the Supreme Court, which has been, you know, ruling fast and furiously on, on cases uh, over the last month or so, uh, they handed down two uh, un- unsigned decisions, which are, you know, basically opinions that they hold in, in terms of affirming or rejecting a case uh, that have, you know, far-reaching implications as we, you know, head into the downhill side toward the November election. Uh, They were uh, decisions on a case uh, that came originally out of Alabama and one out of Texas. In one case on uh, what restrictions states may place on absentee voting during the coronavirus pandemic, the other order is not, as either of these are, is not a final judgment. One granted a stay or a temporary stay of a lower court decision. The other denies expedited review of an important voting rights case. So let, let's take a quick look at these. You know, we'll, we'll start with the Texas case first, as it is the um, most uh, far-reaching and has the potential of being the most consequential. Um, in the Texas case, which uh, if you want to look it up and, and follow the record, is the Texas Democratic Party versus Abbott. Uh, and it addresses the fact that Texas law permits voters over the age of 65 to request absentee ballots without difficulty. But most voters under the age of 65 are not allowed to vote absentee. During a pandemic election, Uh, That means uh, the older voters, the demographic that's historically favored Republicans over Democrats, will have a fairly easy time participating in the November election, but younger voters will likely have to risk infection at an in-person polling site if they want to cast a ballot. Uh, It's a difficult arrangement to square uh, with the Constitution, specifically the 26th Amendment, which provides that, quote, the right of citizens in the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of age. So basically, Texas is flying in the face of the 26th Amendment of the Constitution, uh, basically decided law to uh, exclude groups of voters or restrict groups of voters uh, from voting who are of a certain age, i.e. less than 65 years old. And uh, this has some wide-reaching implications, uh, not just in Texas, but in other states. And it it is something that we need to make sure that we are aware of and something that uh, we need to be prepared for. As I've said before, uh, research where your state stands on absentee balloting. Uh, what are the restrictions? What's allowed? What do you need to do in order to receive an absentee ballot? And make sure that you've got those in place. If your state uh, is one of the ones that restricts absentee balloting to certain conditions and requirements, then you know, your, your resort may only be 
to vote in person, which means you're going to have to make sure that you protect yourself, uh, practice all of the protocols that we need to practice in this age of corona, and uh, make sure you're doing what you're doing, but still get out there to vote. All right, the other decision that came out came out of a case that originated in Alabama, and this one is called Merrill versus People First of Alabama. And it, it is based on uh, an Alabama law that allows anyone to cast an absentee ballot during the pandemic, but also imposes certain restrictions on those voters. Among other things, absentee voters must provide a copy of their photo ID and their ballot must be signed by either two witnesses or one notary public, and that's for mail-in ballots. Um, a lower court blocked those restrictions, uh, citing uh, for voters who s cannot safely obtain the signatures of two witnesses or a notary public due to the COVID-19 pandemic, or for absentee voters who are over the age of 65 and disabled or who cannot safely obtain a copy of their photo ID due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the Supreme Court stayed that lower court decision, ensuring that at the very least, the restrictions in be, will be in place for uh, July 14th when Alabama holds its primary election runoff. So, you know, in both of these cases, the cases were decided by five, four majorities with all five Republican appointed uh, Supreme Court justices uh, voting in the affirmative and all four Democratic appointed justices uh, voting in opposition. So, you know, as I said, the, the, the lay of the land is changing a little bit where uh, some of these things that we have looked at and talked about as uh, tactics of voter suppression are actually being upheld and supported by uh, the courts and just simply going to make the process of voting more difficult for certain groups uh, of the electorate. However, as, you know, as we've said, don't let that stop you. Do what you need to do, get out there and get your vote cast uh, either in July if you're in Alabama for the runoff or in November uh, when the national election is held. Uh, this is an important election and it is one that uh, all of us need to participate in, regardless of party. We need to make sure that at the end of the day, every voice is heard and the numbers are accurately counted and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. So, you know, those, those two things, you know, as, as we say often here on this show, you know, are critically important uh, as we exercise our most valuable right as uh, citizens of the United States, and that is the right for each of us to cast a ballot to elect our governing officials. You know, we have to make sure that you know, we've done our diligence, that we've done everything we need to do in order to be able to cast that ballot on election day, and the government needs to do everything that it needs to do to make sure that every ballot is counted so that we fully understand you know, who gets elected and how they got elected, that the process is fully transparent and without, uh, to the best of our abilities, without objection, obstruction, suppression, or, you know, scandal. So, you know, make sure that you're out there and, and getting your vote done. A lot of people have paid uh, dearly for this privilege over the 244 years of our country. Uh, people have died for your right to vote. 
So it is something that we absolutely must make sure that we're doing. And I know we talk about it every week, but it is just that important. So uh, in, in other news, in other events, uh, Donald Trump, uh, the president, gave a speech uh, again on Friday uh, at the base of uh, Mount Rushmore. And, you know, in he, his, his speech was intended to be a celebration of America. Uh, it ended up being a new source of, of fireworks and divisive uh, statements and, and just escalating and inflaming the culture wars that we are currently going through here in this country. And, um, you know, he used that, that backdrop, that impressive backdrop of Mount Rushmore to deliver a speech that cast himself as the defender of American history against an out-of-control, quote, angry mobs seeking to denigrate the nation's founders and pull down statues and monuments. Now, what that has to do with, you know, the independence of the United States, it's an interesting question. Trump's speech gained, uh, I'm sorry, Trump's speech below the giant faces of four of his predecessors signaled that his presidential campaign will lean heavily on the grievances of a perceived silent majority, a term from you know, the Nixon era, uh, one that is dismayed and disgusted over the protests and unrest that followed the death of George Floyd. Now, if, you, if you've been following the news, you'll notice that there have been a lot of articles and videos and news stories covering the backlash to the Black Lives Movement uh, matter and the the protests that have been occurring around the country, uh, a lot of which you know are are tracking along some very white supremacist diatribes and dialogues, and it, it's clear that the current occupant of the Oval Office is fueling this as an an effort and attempt to motivate his base to uh, come out for the election in November against uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. And he is painting the picture of an us versus them reality to you know, the, the base of the Republican Party that is controlled by Trump. And you know, his, his rhetoric is uh, inflammatory, to say the least. Uh, another quote from the speech, and I'm, I'm quoting here, There is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance if you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments. Then you will be censured, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished, he said. It's not going to happen to us, close quote. Now, that strikes of a little bit of hypocrisy to me, coming from this president. Uh, the same president who has gone out of his way to censure, to uh, obstruct, to, to fire, to punish his supporters, uh, members of his administration. Uh, he has gone after uh, Republican congresspeople and senators in addition to Democratic uh, congresspeople and senators. Anyone that has expressed an opinion that is not in line with what the president believes has essentially become an enemy and has been attacked and ridiculed and otherwise uh, made to feel the effects of a cancel culture 
just because they are expressing their opinions, which happen to differ from the president. Uh, continuing, he also announced that he was assigning an executive order to create an outdoor park that will be filled with statues of the, quote, greatest Americans who ever lived, close quote. So to me, that says he's going to build a monument park where, you know, the statues of these uh, Confederate uh, generals and leaders, you know, such as Lee and, and others, can be displayed, honored, and revered as heroes of American history. Now, you know, there's been a huge debate over this in terms of, of that these people, uh, that these statues represent, and in another uh, decision, he has come out against uh, an effort to rename uh, 10 military bases that are named after prominent figures in the Confederacy, uh, and he is, you know, adamantly uh, opposed to this uh, and has come out publicly stating that he will take, you know, whatever action from a presidential level that he can to make sure that this doesn't happen. So, you know, while, and let's be clear, while the, the so-called heroes of the Confederacy do hold a place in our American history, uh, the question has, has risen as to to what level should we honor these individuals. Uh, yes, they may have been military geniuses. Yes, you know, they, they may have you know, some positive attributes uh, you know, in, in fighting for what they believed in at the time, uh, which you know, no longer should hold any sway in this country at all. But to elevate them uh, to the, the status of heroes of America is really kind of a stretch. And, and like I said, I get it. You know, there is a level of heritage. Uh, you know, the soldiers that fought, you know, they did fight bravely. You know, and, you know, there, there's, there's something to be said for that. However, the Confederacy uh, was based on flawed premise you know it was a a a war fought to preserve the enslavement of people in this country thinly disguised as a war for states rights which if you read accounts of the run-up to the civil war you'll often hear mention the the idea that this was a battle over states rights well yeah that's only part of the sentence this was a battle over certain states rights to enslave people and you know let, let's be clear about that let's not equivocate that's what the Civil War was about uh, at the end of the day if we are going to uphold these individuals for you know their contributions to American history we need to be clear as to what those contributions were can we have statues of Robert E Lee and others uh, be in a place where they can go and be studied and appreciated? Yes, provided that the true and full story is told as well. And given you know, what this president has said and the actions that he has and is taking, uh, it is clear that this is likely uh, not going to be a full and truthful telling of history. 
you know, in another part of the speech, he goes on to continue, quote, make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American revolution, Trump said in his speech, quote, in so doing, they will destroy the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, and that lifted humanity to new heights of achievement, discovery, and process. Now, again, you know, these words ring hollow. You know, number one, the so-called left-wing cultural revolution is not designed to overthrow the American revolution or the American uh, way of life. It is designed to accurately and honestly teach and instruct and tell the story of American history the way it really happened you know, in a true, as truthful a manner as possible. Um, by saying that, you know, he, that, that they are opposing, you know, the United States, the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, etc., is, in my opinion, an overreach. You know, just to make you aware of, of this, if you hadn't listened to the speech, obviously you can hear it in its entirety online, uh, it was a protest uh, marred speech. Uh, number one, it was protesting because there was no mention of the fact that he was giving this speech on land that was designated and signed over to the Sioux Nation, Native Americans, uh, by treaty, by the government of the United States, and then taken back when it was identified that that was the location where the Mount Rushmore Monument was going to be built. Those acres were, you know, basically taken back without fanfare, without any agreement and treaty, and the monument to the, the four presidents shown there was built. It is just another example of the level of hypocrisy that our government can demonstrate uh, with regard to taking care of the marginalized, you know, dispossessed people uh, at, at the fringes uh, of our society, you know, particularly people of color and, you know, poor people when a, you know, as they perceive a more powerful need arises. So, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, you are, are aware of this and are, are making your voices heard and your thoughts known as to, you know, this element of the ongoing history of America that we are living through right now. So let's, let's break there. We'll uh, take a break and when we come back on the other side, we'll pick up and talk about uh, something that's going to be a project here on Fired Up over the coming weeks and that is the discussions that are being held about making the American political system a true multi-party system. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve. I'll be back with you right after this. I was going to get my voter ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, 
those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. The preceding message was presented in public interest as a public service by your friends here at WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Welcome back. This is Fired Up, and I'm Steve. I'm your host, and we're going to jump right back into the discussion we're having today and uh, open up a new topic that we're going to talk about in this segment and uh, continue through to upcoming shows uh, over the course of the coming weeks. And um, this is based on some discussion that has been triggered from the latest rounds of protests that are going on in this country revolving around uh, police brutality and the, the treatment and killing of people of color in this country uh, at the hands of law enforcement. And a lot of it is centering around what is seen as some very deeply divided and political gridlock that is going on in the uh, Congress and Senate uh, of the United States. And uh, it has led to a discussion of whether or not uh, we need to begin to move our country into a true multi-party political system. That is one that uh, doesn't have just two principal parties that uh, sit on either sides of the spectrum and uh, work to get people to either come to their tent or the other tent, but to have a, a democracy uh, that Uh, looks more like how this country looks. Uh, This country is a a divided country right now. Uh, We have two factions, uh, quote, liberal, close quote, and conservative, again, quote, unquote. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion that is being held uh, as to whether or not what we're seeing in terms of the current protest movement, uh, both against the police brutality, but in a broader sense, many of the other injustices that are going on, you know, whether you're talking about the the current uh, flack over the uh, honoring of the Confederacy, as we talked about in the last segment, uh, whether you're looking at, you know, treatment and, and response uh, by the government to a public need, uh, such as the pandemic, And one of the things that has come from this has begun a serious conversation about having, you know, a third viable political party in this country. Now, full disclosure, you know, having a a three or more party system in the United States uh, is something that I have long been a fan of. Uh, I believe that if there were a, a viable third party in the House and in the Senate, uh, it would actually force true compromise to happen in terms of how our country is governed. By that I mean uh, if neither uh, party, if neither the the Democrats or the Republicans have a clear majority, then in order to get things accomplished that they want, they are going to have to enlist the help of, you know, a, a third party to come in to give them the the required number of votes they need to get anything done. 
And this would open up the requirement that our government would have to pay closer attention to the wishes of the people. Not saying necessarily that, you know, it, it might change a whole lot in terms of laws that get passed and so forth, but at least it would eliminate the idea that things that, you know, a, a, as we've heard, and let me back up a step here. Over the past, you know, year, uh, when, when we hear about opinion polls and whether it's opinions on the response of the government to the coronavirus pandemic or, you know, the response of the administration to cries for justice for people of color uh, or, you know, the, the ongoing issues in regard to women's reproductive rights, all of these lightning rod issues uh, tend to fall along partisan lines and we see time and time again where the House, which is currently controlled by Democrats, will pass legislation addressing one of these issues that will come over to the Senate for review and possible passage and there it will uh, either get tabled or languished or just outright killed upon arrival. Uh, because the Senate is controlled by Republicans and they disagree with the Democratic position. If there was a viable third party, this would open up the possibility that an overwhelming majority, or what is called a supermajority, may be able to be constructed so that legislation that the people clearly want uh, would actually end up becoming a bill that goes to the president's desk for signature. Now, that doesn't guarantee that the president, uh, whether it's the current occupant of the Oval Office or a future occupant of the Oval Office, uh, is uh, obligated to sign that bill. If they disagree with it, they can veto it. But if that supermajority is in place, then it is able for the legislative branch to override that veto and make that into a law because that is the wish of the people. And um, just as a, a, a little history here, um, back a while ago, I, I did a show, and, and part of the show is I broke down what the Constitution designates as the governmental structure of the United States. And, you know, we often say that the United States is a democracy without really understanding what that means. The United States of America is what is known as a representative democracy. Uh, what that means is that our government is elected by the citizens. And how many times have we talked about that? Here, we vote for our government officials. The officials represent our wishes, our ideas, and concerns in governing our country. And you know that process is uh, part and parcel of why it is so critical that we get out and vote. Uh, currently, the Senate is controlled by Republicans. They have 53 seats in the Senate, which means they have a majority uh, position in that House, although it is not a veto-proof majority. In order to do that, in order to have a bill that cannot be vetoed by the president, uh, you need to have a two-thirds majority of the Senate and a two-thirds majority in the House. So you would need, you know, 67 votes in the Senate and, you know, two-thirds of the House members uh, in, in the House in order to have a bill that the president could not legally veto. In the House, the uh, Republicans have 198 seats 
the Democrats have 233 seats, and there is one Libertarian uh, uh, Democratic House member as well. Uh, and that Libertarian, uh, although uh, that person caucuses or votes with the Democrats, they can vote to either side. They are not tied to either of the two parties. So you have 100 senators and 435 um, uh, House of Representatives seats, although three of them are currently vacant uh, but should be filled in the coming elections in this November. And, you know, that body is where our laws come from. Uh, as I said in the, in the prior episode, and that's episode 13 if you want to go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and, and download it, um, the, the government has three components. The ad- executive, which is the president, vice president, and the administrative arm of the government. The legislative, which is responsible for uh, the budget and controlling the purse strings, as well as writing and passing bills to be considered and signed into law by the executive branch. And the j- judiciary branch, which is an independent branch of government which is charged with the responsibility of interpreting the laws of this country as they apply to uh, citizens in our everyday lives. Uh, we could go on for many, many hours in, in terms of you know what's going on with the judiciary, and we'll touch on that in upcoming episodes, uh, but suffice to say that the intent of the founders was that the judiciary would sit as the uh, deciding factor in uh, determining how laws in this country are applied. Um, so that being said, and, and again, I encourage you to go into the uh, on-demand archive for uh, WJMS and, and check that out. It's episode number 13. Uh, you know, the, the calls are coming out for you know, constituting and, and creating a national third party to represent us in the Senate and the House of Representatives, as well as to represent us in the at the local level and the state level. You know, while there are arguments for and against uh, why we need to have a third party, uh, there is ample precedent, if you look around the world, at other countries that have you know, many more than just two primary parties uh, in in their governments. England has, uh, I believe, 11. Uh, there are other countries that have as many as 15. Uh, Israel, as I recall, has, you know, five or six primary parties. That is, parties that have a significant uh, enough uh, number of representatives to, you know, effect how legislation travels through their government. And the United States, we have two. We have the Democrats and we have the Republicans, which has led us to the position that we're in now where, you know, it's an us or them, zero sum, if you're, you know, you're not for us, you're against us kind of situation where, you know, one party that gains control of, you know, a branch of the uh, legislative branch, as we have now currently the Democrats control the House, the Republicans control the Senate. And that becomes a formula for gridlock. For ideological and political reasons, you know, the, the opposite party uh, is, is almost duty-bound to reject and oppose legislation by the controlling party uh, just as a matter of course. 
So what does that mean? It means at the end of the day, not much gets done. So the idea of having a, a viable third party, and you know, in my opinion, and this, this is not based on anything other than you know, a, a rough back of the envelope math, you know, if we had a party in this country that controlled, you know, as few as uh, 10 uh, or 12 seats in the Senate and, you know, 30 or 40 uh, seats in the House, then what happens is neither the Republicans nor the Democrats have a clear majority. And in order to get any legislation passed, it would require a, a compromise and coalition be established with the third party in order to get things done. Now, that would open up a lot more opportunity for the voices of the people to be heard in those two bodies, in my opinion. And, you know, it, it could over time improve and restore a real true balance in governing based on the wishes of the people rather than on you know the wishes of you know an elite few or lobby groups or or so forth um, there are a lot of components to how you could build a viable national third party and that's part of what we're going to talk about you know over the coming weeks uh, we'll, we'll do you know a segment uh, on that as we go through the shows week over week because um, it, it is a lengthy topic. There is a, are a lot of things that need to occur. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, but most notably, if we were going to build a, a viable third party in this country, it is not something that would be built in Washington, D.C. and pushed down the line to you and I here in the states. It actually would need to arise from the states uh, and move upward and and uh, basically force the government uh, that is seated at the time to allow and acknowledge that this third party has met the criteria. Uh, to give you an example, in order to be included on national ballots uh, in most states, uh, a, a party needs to have, I believe, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the electorate that has voted for the candidate of that party in order for them uh, not only to be, you know, potentially elected, but also f for that party to actually be listed as a party on the ballot going forward. So that, that threshold of electorate participation uh, has to be maintained. So when you take that math and you figure that we've got, you know, uh, 50 states and uh, two territories that vote, that's, an, that's a big, heavy lift to accomplish, and that's going to take time. And, you know, so we have to have the commitment and the intent that we are going to be in this for a long battle in order to make, you know, a third party become that reality that we think it might need to be. So, you know, but there are arguments in favor of why a third party would be valuable um, it, as I said, it would, it would force, by fact, the creation of a true coalition government. And what I, what I say by that is that if the Republicans are pushing for a piece of legislation, they don't have a majority in order to just vote it along party lines. They are going to need to get not only some like-thinking Democrats, 
but likely they're also going to need to bring you know a a group of the third party into play in order for that bill uh, to move forward same thing in the house of representatives so what does that do it opens up the lines of communication uh, particularly if, if you keep in mind that you know independent voters in this country are actually the majority of voters in this country Republicans and Democrats are equally split at about 28 percent and independents are about 42 43 percent of the overall uh, registered and and participating voters in this country and you know so to keep that in mind in order for anything to 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 transpire you know they're going to need to get the approval of that third party uh, of the electorate of that third party in order to move forward with the agenda now you know as i said and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this in in more detail in the coming weeks because there are some pretty substantial things that would need to change in our country in order for this to become a reality not the least of which is a possibly a constitutional amendment in order to uh, modify or eliminate the electoral college but again i don't want to get deep into the weeds on that discussion here that will be you know one of the topics we talk about in upcoming shows but you know the uh if real change to you know our our party system here in this country uh will is going to happen in other words um it will be born and grown from the local state level as i said and works its way upward to the federal level uh, it will need to incorporate uh, a much more responsive method of electing our representatives uh, whether it is um, you know a, a proportional voting system or a ranked choice voting system uh, you know and that is going to require you know changes to not only some federal procedures but also some state and local procedures as well um, you know there was there was a study done and an interview uh, that was conducted uh, at the Niskansen Center where uh, an interview with Lee Drutman of New America and Jack Santucci of Drexel University and they talked about this and I will post a link to this discussion uh, it is lengthy it, it runs about an hour but it is a really interesting uh, listen to give you an insight as to the internals of how not only our current uh, governmental system functions in terms of political parties but what would be needed in order to move a third party into the position of being a true power broker in Washington and you know getting things done but one of the things they talked about is our current uh, zero-sum approach to elections would need to fundamentally change uh, into a a proportional voting system now you know the the two examples cited is the um, uh, ranked choice voting which basically if you if you think about it basically you have a pool of people uh, running for a position everybody votes remember your high school election for student council 
you have you know a a number of candidates whether it's three four five and everybody in the class voted and the person who got the most votes uh was chosen class president you know the person who got the second most may have been chosen as as vice president and so forth it would be the same thing at at the state level in a ranked choice voting that is you know the person and who got the most votes above a certain number considered you know to be the majority uh is is automatically elected uh if not then the people who got the lesser amount of votes their votes are tallied up another way to look at it is you would go into the booth and you would select your first choice for president and then you would also select a second choice so that if your first choice did not meet the the overall requirements for a majority of the voters based on the number of candidates and the number of votes counted then the second choice uh, candidate his or her votes would be tallied and so forth so while your first choice may not get selected the second choice candidate may have enough votes to effectively garner a majority of the votes and thereby be elected uh, that's the the ranked choice voting and it's actually in you in use right now uh, in the state of Maine in certain elections where they actually do this kind of proportional vote so the other type that this, uh, this interview talked about is what's called a proportional system. And basically, that is the true definition of one person, one vote. Uh, and this would be the one that would require some heavy lifting in terms of changing the structure of how we uh, elect our officials in this country. Most notably, uh, would probably require the elimination of the Electoral College. And basically, it would also eliminate the so-called uh, swing states uh, that are the key states that elect presidents, the six, seven, eleven states that are must-wins in order for the Electoral College nomination to be secured. So it would actually go to what has been called for by many people in, in recent months and years, that every vote is counted individually toward the ultimate goal. So, you know, it really is a every state matters and every voter matters. And there is some benefit to that. There is, you know, a, a much more feeling of inclusion in the process by the constituent. And that is, you know, important. And it also makes sure that it is clear to the elected officials that, you know, their votes came, especially at the federal level, that your votes came from a majority of what the people of the entire country want you to do. So, you know, it, it carries a lot more gravitas than you just won six of the key battleground states, you know, in the last election. So therefore you win. So, you know, there are advantages to both systems and we're going to explore that uh, coming up in future episodes. But I just wanted to include this as as the starting point uh, and, and give you guys the the homework assignment of going out and doing some research on the uh, proportional voting system uh, for voting and also the ranked choice voting system just so you have an understanding and I'll post uh, links and information to it on my Facebook page at, at facebook.com forward slash fired up radio and you know just so that you have an understanding of what the discussion is 
and you know what the benefits are to you uh, as i said it it is something that you know and and we need to be cautious and and full disclosure this is something that is going to take a very long time to put in place uh on the order of you know 20 years so if if we're true about you know changing the political process and the political landscape in this country it is something that is going to take multiple presidential cycles in order to accomplish and it is going to take the commitment of we the people to make it happen Uh, we cannot afford to be disillusioned to be sidetracked uh, dissuaded or distracted if this is our ultimate goal and as as we'll find out going forward uh, there are some extremely positive benefits uh, to having, you know, a, a three-party or more-party system in our country, uh, as well as some added value in terms of what it would mean overall in the the long-term health of our country, both politically and economically. Uh, so there's a lot to discuss with that. We're going to be picking this conversation up across multiple shows. So, you know, hopefully, uh, if you have some thoughts on it, please, by all means, send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and give me your thoughts. I want to hear from what you think of the idea of having a viable third party is in this, in this country. Would that make a difference? Do you think it would or do you think it wouldn't? And, and speaking of opinions... I also wanted to uh, and intended to bring an update on the survey we launched last week on whether or not, you know, essentially we should vote the current crop of elected officials who are up for re-election in November, whether we should vote them off the island or whether we should vote to keep them. You know, do they deserve to be rehired for another term? And that's congressmen, senators, uh, state level, local level, all the way up to the President of the United States. Do they deserve another uh, term at governing our country based on how they have performed in the first three years? You know, as I said in my initial call out for the survey, you know, if we in our jobs behaved, acted, said, and did the things that many of our political leaders have done in theirs, you know, in, in our job, they would have thrown us out the door. We would have lost our job in a heartbeat. So we're taking a survey to see if we need to exercise that same option with those who have been elected to represent us. Remember, if they're not doing what we want them to do, it is our right, it is our responsibility, and it is our duty to, you know, show them the door, to vote in a government that represents us the way we want them to represent us. So, you know, there's your call to action. Uh, please take a moment, send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and just simply say, and you can say it in the subject line or you can say it in the, in the body and, and give some explanation as to why you believe the way you believe. Just a- as simple as, you know, vote them out or keep them in. I want to get as broad a representation as possible. So I'm looking for all of you Republicans out there. I'm looking for all of you Democrats. I'm looking for you independents. You know, weigh in. It is, it's, it's informal. It's really just a, a curiosity to gauge the sentiment of the listeners to my show and to WJMS in general. 
and you know I just want to see what you guys think as always if you have show ideas or things you'd like me to research and talk about on the show please include those in your email and I'll be sure to take them up well that's all the time we have for this week as always I want to thank you for joining each week to fire it up right here on wjmsradio.com this is Steve please if you're out there stay safe you know wear a mask practice the distancing it it is only the way that you're going to help protect yourself your loved ones and the community everybody take care have a great week and i will talk to you again in seven days message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late